Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. Deep Throat, or Mark Felt, perhaps the most famous source of all time portrayed there in a clip from the film All the President's Men. That one source started off a chain reaction that would come to expose the Watergate scandal and eventually bring about the demise of a president. But while a tip-off that monumental may be rare, journalist sources are an integral part of a huge number of investigations. I know sources have been vital in some of my biggest stories, Though I must admit, I can't say I've ever been summoned to a poorly lit parking garage to be fed tantalising snippets of information. But how do journalists meet their sources? How do two people, moving along in parallel, one with a story to tell, the other trying to tell that story, how do their paths converge? And what happens next? I'm Maeve McLennigan, and this is The Tip-Off, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. Our story today starts with this man. Hi, my name is Martin Wells, and I'm a freelance film editor. Back in 2006, Martin Wells had an unusual job, and it came with an even more unusual walk to work. And on several occasions, my walk to work would be walking past a military convoy loading up Saddam Hussein into his truck to go to trial. And so saying good morning to him was always quite a a little highlight. Martin's job had taken him to Baghdad, Iraq. Officially, the war was over. Three years earlier, George W. Bush had stood on an aircraft carrier under a banner reading, Mission Accomplished. My fellow Americans... Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. But troops remained in the country, and along with them, civilians were working hard too. Martin had got a job there working for a British PR company, and it was a gig unlike anything he'd done before. So we were on a military base, and living conditions were hot, 
obviously, um, the office in Building 1A. Building 1 was the military palace where the general stayed and all this stuff. Building 1A was us. So fairly high up on the agenda. Every day, Martin would sit in an air-conditioned office and edit videos. These were films with a purpose. But we'll have to get to that later. Because right now, right at this moment, here in Martin's chilly edit studio, with Saddam Hussein a few hundred metres away, Martin is bound by a non-disclosure agreement. He's sworn to secrecy. Skip forward ten years. Iraq's problems continue, albeit in new and different forms. Back in London, amongst a jumble of data, a journalist finds herself unknowingly heading in Martin's direction. Uh, I'm Abigail Fielding-Smith and I work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Abby heads up the international team at the Bureau. There she works on issues around military drones. And it was work on this that threw up a clue about something interesting that had happened in Iraq. Well, it actually started um, because my colleague Crofton Black, um, for a previous story we did, built this database uh, which enables us to search US military spending records. It's quite fun playing around on the database because um, we Crofton sort of has written this quite good SQL code, which enables you to even like someone like me, who's not like data savvy, um, to like interrogate the database and ask it questions. And you can do things like show me all the companies that received money in this period for operations in Somalia or whatever and like you can just do it and it's quite weirdly addictive and satisfying after a while anyway so Crofton would have run one of these searches I guess and it takes um it takes a few minutes normally um uh and then it sort of comes up as a spreadsheet um and then you sort of go through the spreadsheet and uh it's always yeah it's a bit like sort of sometimes like plunging your hands into the lucky dip and rummaging around and then you sort of examine all the things that you've pulled out and occasionally you know quite often it's just stuff that you can't really do anything with or it doesn't make sense or either like very obvious stuff that you predict or stuff that doesn't make much sense or stuff that is like couched in so many acronyms you don't really understand it and then every now and then there's like a little sort of glint of something really interesting like treasure in there. The database with all those details on US military spending was a great resource and one day Abby ran a search that proved particularly fruitful. And uh, our editor said, why don't you just see what the biggest um, British companies, b- biggest recipients of uh, US spending from Britain are and just run a search on it. So we did. Up came the spreadsheet. And amongst the usual military contractors, BAE and Rolls-Royce, there was another name, Bell Pottinger. This really quite large amount. And we were like, what the hell is that about? Bell Pottinger are a UK-based public affairs company. Their past clients have included Coca-Cola, Asda, HSBC, but also unsavoury characters like former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. So what were they doing being paid by the Pentagon? And why had they been in Iraq? So I think initially all we'd really kind of managed to establish was that, you know, vaguely doing some communications work in Iraq and just the sheer scale of it. So initially it was kind of quite a small, like businessy story in a way, just about, isn't it interesting, this large amount, you know, large amount of money going out. Intrigued, Abby realised the only way she was going to get further was finding someone who would talk. And that was easier said than done. We tried to contact people that used to work 
uh, for Bell Pottinger in Iraq. And um, as is often the case, you know, you just hopefully send things out into the ether and don't expect any of them to come back. But it's almost like you've got to go through that process. Abby trawled the internet to find people who might have previously worked at the PR firm. She fired off dozens of emails. I think you just sort of say, like, I'm a journalist, we're doing a story on um, information operations in Iraq and contractors or something. Uh, I mean, I think, I think obviously it's very important not to um, mislead them uh, and to misdirect and to kind of give a different account of what you're, other than what you're actually doing. But at the same time, you don't want to give them like so many specifics about what you're interested in the first email because that might scare them off. And, you know, you want it to be a sort of uh, open open-minded, open-ended discussion. The email sent, Abby waited. And then, surprisingly, one person said, yeah, I've worked on that, I'm happy to talk about it. That person was Martin Wells. By now, he was back in the UK, working as a freelance video editor. He still remembers the moment he got the email. When I first received the email, it was it was totally out of the blue and completely unexpected. Um I thought people had forgotten all about that and they weren't really interested in anything um, along those lines of what the people at Bell Pottinger were up to out there. They were more interested in the military side of it. So it was quite interesting to me that somebody um, was investigating them. Martin knew the work he had done was unusual, but he'd never thought to talk to anyone about it before. It hadn't even occurred to me to talk to a journalist about it because... Um, I'd worked with lots of journalists in news before and they were always looking for their own little angle to make their own little story, never really looking at the bigger picture of what was going on. And this just struck me as it was looking at the company rather than the individuals and not trying to blame people, but just investigate what was going on um, and trying to get to the bottom of it. And that was much more interesting to me than people who just wanted to, you know, put their own penage worth in and have an extra grind. Um, so I was um, much more interested in getting involved in that. And as luck would have it, Martin's 10-year non-disclosure agreement had just run out, so he was free to talk. Excited, Abby arranged to meet Martin in the city of Bath. So it was uh, well, maybe this time last year. It's sort of springy a bit. Um, and it was in Bath. Um, and I, don't, I haven't been to Bath since school trips to the Roman sites. So that was quite nice. And I was like sort of train pulled into Bath. And I was like, oh, quite want to go to the Jane Austen Museum. They found a cafe, veggie only, to accommodate Martin, ordered some food and started talking. So it was a good long chat. Um, I told her all about what I did there. Sat across the table. Abby was scribbling down notes. My jaw was just like on the floor. <laughs> um, and he was incredibly candid and... I mean, it was kind of great because we'd approached him. He hadn't approached us. He he wasn't someone sort of, and he was willing to go totally on the record. He obviously wasn't someone sort of with some agenda that he wanted to kind of anonymously stir the pot from the shadows. Um, he just kind of, I think, like quite wanted to tell the story about what happened because it was such a kind of roller coaster for him. He was a video editor who'd worked on like TV programs, basically, and answered a job ad or got approached by his agency, I think, about a job saying they need a video editor in Iraq and he didn't really know anything about it. And then suddenly, you know, as as he described to us, got catapulted into this, uh, you know, military camp in Baghdad, um, working on this super sensitive project and, and had like a crazy um, time just sort of being involved in all this. When she had entered the cafe that morning, all Abby knew was that British PR firm Bell Pottinger had worked in Iraq and that they had received a huge sum of money for that work. Now she was finding out exactly what that money had paid for. 
and and when he started telling me some of the details of it, I was sort of like, you you have that sort of moment. Um, I'm sure you know when like your heart starts beating a bit more quickly. And you're like, oh, this is like much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Um, this is actually like a story story. Martin explained that he had been part of a psyops unit. That's psychological operations. Long after the bombs had stopped falling in Iraq, the battle for hearts and minds was continuing, and the Pentagon's PR machine was vast. So my role out there basically was to run sections of media, media arm working with um, the psychological warfare unit, effectively. We made videos of bombs that had gone off, so things would happen, we would react to them, they would be filmed, the reactions would be filmed, the devastation would be filmed, we would then make um, short films about that, um, what had happened, and they would be broadcast um, on various channels. So we would do them in English, first of all. They would cut the command chain to the White House, and they would come back down, or the Pentagon, whichever, and then they would come back down, telling us to make changes or not. Then we'd um, send it off and get it voiced in Arabic, lay the voice back in, and then that would go out on various Arabic channels around the Middle East. And when you say it quickly, like that, um, people go, oh, okay. And then when people think about it, then they think, oh, hang on, it's propaganda. And it's like, well, it is and it isn't, because we worked with the Americans who were very gung-ho with propaganda, whereas our side of the department were English and Scottish, basically. So we had a much more level-headed, level-playing kind of area that we did, and we would balance that out. So we said that we can't go full-on propaganda. We have to actually engage with people here and say that these bombs going off, they're killing you. You know, everyone wants to stop. So that was that was more of the approach rather than trying to sledgehammer them home, really. Videos like this. Images of Iraqi families and markets. The voiceover here in English would be replaced in Arabic once the films were signed off. Films encouraging a rejection of Al-Qaeda. And this. But to Al-Qaeda, they are equally abhorrent. To them, they are evidence of their own failure to turn our country upon itself, to see it burn and pledge allegiance to their emirate of darkness. That is why they hurt us. That is why they hate us, us ordinary people. Knowing about the films was good detail. And as they talked, Abby was getting a clearer picture of why a PR firm might be contracted by the Pentagon. But there was more. Yeah, so that was all interesting. And then he raised this stuff about uh, the tracking and um, started talking about making like fake insurgent videos um, and using them to like via a Google Analytics account track where these videos were viewed. Martin explained how, as well as the fairly benign propaganda films, he had been instructed to make other films that looked like they could have come from Al-Qaeda or other insurgents. The contents of those ECDs were basically videos that we'd ripped off of various sites and were provided to us as well of um, Al-Qaeda actions, celebrations, blowing up of things, shooting of things, all those kind of things you expect um, that you would see as a propaganda film from that side. Those films would be burned onto CDs and could only be viewed through a video player that connected to the internet. As soon as someone tried to watch the film, it would be logged online. So as soon as they fired it up, little white screen flash, 
if they were connected to anything online, then when we logged into Google Analytics in a couple of days, we could then see where it was watched. Martin made these CDs and passed them on. He can't be 100% sure what happened to them next. But he believes the CDs were scattered around, sometimes dropped in the homes of suspected insurgents during raids. The idea, it seems, was to be able to track how these CDs were shared and spread. According to Martin, the CIA had given him a new online identity to allow him to get up the Google Analytics account. So, from the base in Baghdad, with a click of the mouse, he could watch as the film started to show up around Iraq and even abroad, once in Syria. It was quite an odd experience logging in. And well, the time when you're there, I suppose, it's not on. You just sort of think, oh, yeah, I'm just doing another job. You log in, you get on with it. You think, okay, fine, here's the tracking information. You give that off. Um, once you've given it off to your boss and he gives it off to the military, you don't know what they do with it. They just use it. I would imagine many people got visits um, from military or other organisations. Um, that's what I was led to believe. Um, I can neither can I can't confirm it for sure, but that's what I was told. Um, so yeah, so it was it was quite interesting to think you're having an impact. Um, are you directly having an impact on an individual? Are you direct, Are you having an impact on Al-Qaeda's organisations by tracking these and these people being, so to say, visited? According to Martin, the work he was doing for Bell Pottinger was being signed off by General David Petraeus, who was then commander of the coalition forces in Iraq, and on some occasions by the White House. It was a fascinating-sounding project, and far more than Abby had thought she'd get when she turned up in Bath that morning. I was excited, and, and it's always the way in these things in your notebooks, you've got like some things, you're like, great, like this is just great detail that we can put in the story, and this is like usable straight away, and this is other stuff, which is like, okay, this is a great lead that we now need to do some work on. Yeah, so at that point, you have what? You have a name in a database, and you have this one guy, a single guy, telling you, this was my experience. What do you do next? How do you go about putting the other pieces of the jigsaw together? Yeah, well, then that was the kind of process that was quite time consuming. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it wasn't like we kind of got one breakthrough kind of um, development on that. It was just like lots of incremental things, which um, basically um, confirmed the picture that he was painting. and we just had to sort of keep working at it for a really long time. Abby kept digging. She spoke to contacts, many of them off the record, to try and get confirmation of what Martin had told her. And in the end, we spoke to about half a dozen people involved in who had formerly been involved in one way or another in information operations in Iraq. Um, and yeah, like, as I say, Martin Wells was, I, I mean, there were... There were two or three that I think did go on the record just talking about quite sort of prosaic stuff like around the contracting procedure or something. Um, But Martin Wells was the only one who talked about the kind of things, the kind of operations going on that was willing to do it completely on the record. And yeah, through various ways, um, which I can't go into totally to kind of protect the uh, sources, but we were able to kind of 
back up um you know we never really had any reason to doubt our source in the first place but just for our own kind of confidence in the story um uh and sort of confidence that we'd done good practice abby would occasionally come back to martin probing further wanting to go back and check and triple check all kinds of things and you know i used to start all my emails to him like i'm so sorry i hope this is the last one and it would never be the last one um <laughs> every now and again she's a little transparent <laughs> and uh, she doesn't see it and it's quite amusing um because I'll get a random email from her and basically it's like, okay, what does she want? <laughs> Instead of just saying hello, there's obviously something behind it. <laughs> it's like, okay, what's wrong? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. With the pieces falling into place, it was time to start going to the main actors involved to get their take on the findings. Bell Pottinger's operations on behalf of the US government stopped in 2011 as American troops withdrew from Iraq and its unit that worked there no longer exists. What's more, the company switched ownership completely in the time between Martin's employment and Abby's story. I think we did have some engagement with someone um, in the communications or press team at Bell Pottinger. I mean, yeah, they they were very keen to stress that um, because there'd been like a management buyout in 2012, um, the company bearing the name Bell Pottinger now does not have, is not the same as the unit involved in the Iraq work. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism partnered up with the Sunday Times and their journalist, Jonathan Ungo Thomas, managed to make contact with Bell Pottinger's former chairman, Lord Bell. 
He told the Sunday Times that the deployment of tracking devices described by Martin was perfectly possible, but he was personally unaware of it. He said he was proud of Bell Pottinger's work in Iraq. We did a lot to help resolve the situation, he said. Not enough. We did not stop the mess which emerged. But their work was part of the American propaganda machinery. Talking to the Pentagon was another matter. But thankfully, due to Abby's long-term work on military drones, she knew how to handle it. I think actually the, the moment where we all felt like really strong about the story was actually when I was doing the right of reply to the Pentagon. And uh, this is one of those things where you just, it really pays to be quite immersed in the military's acronyms and stuff because they kind of gave, an, their initial reply was like the IOTF, which is the Information Operations Task Force, um, did not do any non-attributed material. But hang on, that sounds like a denial. Was the story wrong after all? Which, you know, on the face of it is a bit of a dismaying uh, knockback of the whole story. And then I sort of thought about it and then I was like, but I don't think, when you look at the wording, like it's just saying the IOTF didn't do that and I think there were other task forces in Iraq and I went back to Martin and he said, yes, I actually work for something called the JPOTF, I think, which is the Joint Psychological Operations Task Force. So anyways, then when I went back to the Pentagon and I was like, uh, okay, I get the IOTF didn't do any um, falsely attributed material. I think that's what they said, falsely attributed. Um, but what about the JPOTF? And they said, oh, well, we can't comment on what the work the JPOTF does. And I was like, well, can you say whether, can you confirm whether or not Bell Pottinger worked on the JPOTF? And they said, yes, it did. Um, so that was kind of like quite a good moment in the um, backing up of it all. And it, uh, I think that the best kind of weapon you can have in getting like a substantive response out of them is to be really kind of immersed in their language and in their technicalities because they kind of, you know, it is a language. It's its own distinctive idiom and, and it, it's like that for a reason, you know, it's to, it's to keep out outsiders. And if you kind of become, well, I wouldn't say I'm fluent in it, but if you develop some workable vocab in that language, um, the quality of what you get out of them is so much better. So after about three months of research, tracing contracts, tracking down confirmation, Abby and her team were ready to publish. You know, it was a week out, obviously it was a nightmare, it was a weekend. Um, and Crofton and I were in my house um, with some Chinese takeaway, uh, just sort of, um, get, you know, get you know what it's like, like the last 12 hours or 24 hours before a story goes out and like last minute things that have to be done or checked or checked. And we were also co-publishing with the Daily Beast in the US um, cause obviously we wanted a US partner. So we had like th three different versions of the story that had to be constantly like updated with the, um, mandated changes, um, all the time. Uh, and that was obviously, that was quite stressful, but also kind of quite a buzz. I mean, I kind of, I think we probably all slightly in some sick way live for those moments, um, when your adrenaline is going. And, uh, and I guess, one of the reasons that I actually really enjoy investigative journalism, I used to be a daily newspaper reporter, is, I mean, although it's such a stress getting a story out in investigative journalism, like, by the time that bloody thing has gone out, you have, like, rung it through, like, every possible, you know, thing that, fault that could be found with it and, you know, double checked and triple checked the facts in it and... So you do get to a certain point of like, not peace exactly, but you're like, 
I just don't, I'll just be happy not to think about this anymore. Like, <laughs> let the consequences come as they may. Like, <laughs> it's sort of out of my hands now. I've done my job. And now it's just, uh, it just goes out into the world. As Abby scrambled away, putting the final touches to the story, Martin was at home, waiting for the moment it would break. I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know what was going to happen. I spoke to Bill Pottinger beforehand and told them this was happening. And I think Abby spoke to them as well, and they were fine about it. Um, and I think even in the article I said I was very pleased with the work I thought we did out there. And um, we worked really hard, but I was happy to talk about it, and I had no problem talking about it. The story went on the front page of the Sunday Times, as well as being published on the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's website. But it was also of particular interest to a certain segment of the internet. You see, the article's uncovering of what looked like media manipulation struck a chord. And so, what was a meticulously researched piece of investigative journalism, ironically, began being shared by those who loved to shout fake news. You see this here, the Pentagon paid a PR firm $540 million to make fake terrorist videos. This is nothing new. But guys, this is all coming out. You just got to wonder... Right, you basically you can't once you put a story out into the world, you can't really control how people interpret it and what they do with it. And uh, you know, you saw people uh, saying, "Oh, you know, like I always said, all news is made up by the Pentagon." You really sort of had to restrain yourself from like individually contacting all these people and being like, "No, no, no, (laughs) that's not what we're saying." Um, But you know, on having said that, on the plus side, um, it did also get a lot of attention from a lot of very like serious minded people and I think it it shed light on um a, an area which is like totally fascinating to us which uh, and which is sort of in different forms a really current issue today which is kind of I guess the blurring line between kind of communications PR and kind of politics and military and security and there's this like very interesting kind of world in which they're all kind of like rubbing up against each other and and you know anything that involves like military and intelligence gets classifications slapped on it which means there's like an aura of secrecy and a lack of uh accountability about the whole thing so i think you know i'm really glad we did the story obviously and i think it was it was useful you just um you wish you could sometimes like have the opportunity to put riders on it saying, please do not interpret this as meaning that all news is made up by the Pentagon. So the story was spreading all across the internet. But for Martin, it spilt over into real life. Um, I had a fair amount of interest come back from it, which was quite interesting. And the day after, immediately the day after it ran, I got a threatening text. A text message from an unknown number. Basically, it said, um, hey kid, Better keep your head down. Random number, tried calling it, didn't go anywhere, tried texting it, didn't, didn't come back, nothing. So yeah, all a little bit grey. And, um, yeah, there was nothing I could do about it. I, I reported it and I spoke to, um, somebody, I can't remember who it was now, um, somebody Abby, um, put me in touch with, um, who was doing all the media side of it and, um, it, I met him there as well, that it had happened. Um, so it was all logged, basically. There were never any more threatening texts, but it was an unsettling experience. I asked Martin if he had any regrets about speaking out. But I'm really pleased that the article did surface, 
I'm very pleased about what I said. Um, I always said from the beginning, when I spoke about this, that I wasn't blaming anyone for anything and I wasn't going to accuse anyone of anything, and I never have. I think what we did was we tried to do as good, and as I think I said in the article, I said to Abby at the same at the time, if half a billion dollars can just save a few people, it's worth it. So there you go, the story of how a journalist and a source found each other. After the story ran, Martin was sounded out by agents talking about buying the film rights to the story or asking him to write a book. He's not taken up either thing yet, but he does say there's plenty more still to tell. And Abby's story is currently on the shortlist for the prestigious International Data Journalism Awards. Journalists across the UK continue to seek out sources and follow-up stories, always on the lookout for the next deep throat, the next tip-off. That's all from this week's episode. Next time. It's one of the hardest things I've had to do as a journalist. Jane Bradley tells us how she tracked down not one, but two of the world's most wanted terrorists. This has been a tip-off. Hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production advice from Lorna Stewart. Our theme music is by Dice Muse. Thanks to Abigail Fielding-Smith. As always, you can find a link to her story in the show notes. If you've liked this episode, please do tell a friend, write us a review on iTunes, and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.